Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I had this really overwhelming job and I couldn't keep track of the information. Like it was just, I couldn't keep track. So I'm being overwhelmed by information and just churning through productivity tools. Everything that you can think from that era that existed, I basically tried it. And I encountered the same problem in all of them. It's that they had a limited depth. So there's always some definition of project, some definition of milestone task, whatever, or just the size of the paper in Word, for example, that limits how much you can break things down. And as I think someone with ADD, I really need to break something as big as like take over the world down into this a step as small as like open your computer and type a word. Basically, all the projects I have seemed like they expanded and I needed something with a fractal structure. So I just needed, I knew I needed a fractal structure and I knew I wanted to make something. I'd taken a couple programming classes in college and, and I knew I loved that. Programming felt the same to me as working with clay or drawing or something like that. It really felt like an artistic, you have an idea, you make something and there it is in front of you. It's, it's like a beautiful thing. So I just decided to combine those. I knew I wanted a fractal thing and I knew I liked programming. So I just started working on it. And once I started using it, I was like, this is great. This is awesome. I like it. Well, that's the, that's the impetus. That's the story. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Jesse, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. It's a delight to be here. Uh, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually found out because somebody on your team wrote in and uh, told me a bit about what you did. And when I heard that you went from thinking you were going to be an actor to starting a tech company, I thought to myself, I was like, okay, wait a minute, this is a fascinating story. There's got to be something here that uh, is very different. Anyways, before we get into all of that, uh, I wanted to start by asking, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up shaping what you ended up doing with your life and career? Sure. Um, so my dad is a doctor. He's an internist. And my mom was a physical therapist, body worker, artist. Um, and so my, my dad really wanted to be a country doctor, like literally living in a, well, like I was born in a house with, there's like a hundred people in the town and he wanted to just be traveling around, you know, doing births in people's houses and stuff like that. And uh, my mom couldn't handle it. Basically. So she was like, I need to move to the big city. So we moved to a town with like 6,000 people. Um, and that's where I grew up. And so his, his desire to be a country doctor, he grew up in, in New York city. Um, and then on Long Island kind of had a huge impact on me just in terms of me being rural. I don't, and that obviously wasn't entirely because you want to be a doctor, but we wanted to be in the country. And, uh, I don't know. He worked a lot and I, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to not be there for my kids basically. And he, he was there for my kids after the divorce, you know, but mm -hmm. I didn't want to be someone who was like working that hard and particularly being a doctor. Like he works so hard and he's a great dad. Um, but I didn't want to be up all night, every night and waking up then waking up at 5 a.m. Um, and my mom, I mean, so she's a, 
it's interesting. What immediately comes to mind for my mom is not her actual work, which, which was body work, which is great. And I think it made me really love getting massages, but her art stuff, like that's, she really, she was a calligrapher and in, in college and she, she was just a really great artist. And that had a huge impact on me just in terms of her teaching me to draw, teaching me what it takes to get good at something. And um, just, I love drawing and that's something I do basically all day um, while I'm working. Like I'm talking to people, I'm drawing. If I wasn't, didn't want to make scratching sounds, I'd be drawing right now. And so that's a pretty big impact. Um, it's not her work, but it's kind of her, I don't know, evocation or something. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Uh, well, your last name is Patel. Is, are you, is your dad Indian? Yeah. So this is a really interesting, interesting thing. So my family is, well, my mom's side is, is sort of been in America for a long time, but my dad's side is Polish Jewish and Russian Jewish. And certain things were happening in the beginning of the 20th century, which meant Poland was not a safe place for my family to be. And so the last memory my grandfather has of, of Poland from when he's a little kid is like, a Jew being dragged behind a cart by a rope, right? And then they're like, peace out and let's get out of here. And they come to America. And for most of my life, their name was Patelski. And for most of my life, I thought that the way Patelski became Patel was at Ellis Island, they cut off the last part of the name, which they often do. They just make it simpler, right? But it turns out that's not true. My grandfather and like half of his siblings, he had like five siblings, chopped made it from Patelski to Patel in, I think, the 60s. or the, I guess it had to be earlier. Than my dad was born in Patel. Basically, when they were here, they were young adults. They were, they were working in New York City. Um, and I think, I think they, there's not broad agreement on why they did it. Like, the, they've all passed away, but we've been talking about it. It's either because of Polish prejudice, like they didn't want to be called like a dumb Pole. There's, but the main two theories are that they basically were pissed at Poland for murdering all their relatives, or they just wanted a shorter name for business purposes. Basically, like my my grandfather was a was a like a Robitussin salesman, and he just didn't want a long Polish name. So, I actually being like pretend Indian has been a major part of my life, basically. <laughs> so like. We live in this small town, so anytime an Indian would move into our town, they'd look in the in the phone book for Patels. My dad's yeah. a doctor, so they'd see Doctor Patel. They'd call us, <laughs> and my dad, but my dad is like obsessed with India, so so he's like, he's like, oh, I'm not Indian. You should come over. We'll have you over, and he'd like cook them Indian food, and he'd, like he'd always make banana curry, which like I'm so I'm now married to an Indian. And I've never had banana curry. Like, I don't know. Yeah, like, me either. I've never even heard right? of banana curry until yeah. you just told me about it. Exactly. So I'm like, what the fuck is this banana curry? But growing up, I thought that was like such a classic Indian dish. And, uh, so, so yeah, so that's huge. Like, and so now I'm married to an Indian, but the weird thing is she's from Goa, which they're all colonized by the Portuguese. So she has a European last name. Yeah. Patel. And, <laughs> so she's yeah. Indian and she got an Indian last name by marrying you. Yeah. And and then the the final twist is we had kids and there were two girls and I kind of thought like well they should get their mom's name because they're girls and feminism and all that, but she was like really torn between essentially you know they're gonna have you half white kids they're gonna be white passing and no one's gonna know they're Indian, so if mm. she gave them my name, they would like people would know they're Indian and it's shorter because her last name is like Mascarenhas which is a Portuguese last name. Yeah. So she actually went with Patel, which is which I I'm happy about rubbing her face. <laughs> yeah wow okay uh well so the funny thing is I've, I've had a lot of jewish podcast guests and from what i understand the narrative about making your way in the world uh in a jewish household is is pretty much the same as it is an indian household doctor lawyer engineer i mean you went to stanford so i'm guessing there had to be some of that in your family you know it's interesting not really actually so so i so when I was applying to Stanford, so I, I wanted to go to Stanford. I didn't even know what Stanford was. I learned about, I was obsessed with like science and stuff when I was in, in sophomore in high school. And, uh, I, there was a couple of, I read Scientific American all the time and there were a couple of, 
um, experiments I was really excited about. And I learned, they were all at Stanford Research Labs. And when I learned from US News and World Report while sitting in the truck, my dad's truck outside his office waiting for him, that Stanford was a college, I was like, I want to go there. And when I started applying to Stanford, my dad was like, are you sure you want to do that? Like, it's kind of like applying to Harvard. It's really hard to get into. He was discouraged from doing it. And I was like, Dad, I haven't gotten a math problem wrong in the last two years. And he's like, um, so, so no, not at all. My parents were very much like supporting me and what I wanted to do. Also, I got kicked out of a lot of schools when I was little. I was like the bad kid. Um, so I don't think that was really, it wasn't projected to be in the cards for me. Exactly. Hmm. Okay. So how in the world do you go from being the bad kid who gets kicked out of a lot of schools to getting into Stanford. Like that doesn't seem oh, yeah, so likely. There's, there's two important things. So one is Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. A lot can happen in 3 years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Mrs. Hosker, thank you very much. Um, Mrs. Hosker, freshman year, was this teacher who would let me, a lot of my teachers would let me like bring, for example, ceramics into class and work on them in class. So I wasn't totally disruptive Um, or like work on art in class, whatever. They would just let me do stuff. So I wouldn't like make their class a hellhole. And she came up to me one day relatively early in the school. And she said, Jesse, I think you're pretty smart. Like, do you want to be in like the honors courses? And I was like, what? No, I'm not smart. And she's like, think about it. And, and she, she, she had me go talk to the guidance counselor. And he's like, well, teacher thinks you should do it. You should do it. So I, she basically just convinced me to transfer into the advanced, uh, 
courses. And then I didn't really, I mean, I still did art in class, but I, I didn't, it was interesting all of a sudden. And I was like, oh, I guess I'm not, I guess I'm smart. You know, like, wow, that's interesting. So that was one thing. And then the other thing, so that was freshman year, but then, so I was in these classes and they were great. But after my sophomore year, um, my dad, we were in vacation and I remember canoeing around in like, what's it called? Mystic Connecticut. There's, you know, that, I don't know. There's like a movie called Mystic Pizza or something. Anyways, we're, we're canoeing around on vacation and he said, you know, there's something I want to talk to you about for a long time, but I did not bring it up. And he basically said, I think you have ADD and uh, do you want to do something about it? Do you want to get evaluated and maybe get medicated and all this stuff? And I was like, yeah, that sounds cool. Basically, because I was like, I want to get into Stanford. <laughs> Honestly, it's like, I really want to go to where the Gravity Probe B, Gravity Probe B was this experiment that's really cool to try to um, validate some prediction of the theory, Einstein's theory of general relativity. And I was really excited about it. And I, when I learned it was happening at Stanford, I really wanted to go there. So I was like, oh yeah, I'll do anything I can do to get in there. And so I got tested and they were like, yeah, you have ADD. Do you want some cocaine basically is what they give you and I was like yeah. yeah give me some cocaine it'll help and so they give me the cocaine Ritalin and um I was just like holy cow they're telling it they're explaining all this stuff to me in class like I used to basically just figure out math and then I just was like they're just explaining how it works this is so easy and I really I just I, I think I got like maybe one problem wrong in the next two years in math mm-hmm. but basically all of my like math and physics were all like higher than 100% since then. And so that there's those two things like Ms. Hosker and, and cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, I mean, I, I, I'm glad that you brought that up because I also, uh, you know, have been diagnosed with ADHD, but yeah. the thing that happened to me and this, I, I always say is such an irony. My fourth grade teacher told my parents that I might have a learning disability because I was failing reading, which is ironic because I've written books for a living for years. Mm-hmm. And right. I, you know, because they're Indian parents, they're like, he doesn't have a learning disability. You're just a shitty teacher. And so it went undiagnosed. I just actually finished writing this article about sort of the long and short term consequences of being undiagnosed with ADHD until I was, I think, 28. I mean, mm. fired from every job, terrible grades at Berkeley. I mean, I got straight A's in high school because I have Indian parents. They would just disown you if you didn't get straight A's. Um, but why do you think that we have this sort of stigma around ADHD, I mean, it, like you're, you see, th- this is what I'm seeing, like in the contrast, it's like you got the diagnosis when you yeah. were young and look at the results. I got the diagnosis way later and after the diagnosis and medication, yeah. it was like a different world. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, it's funny because you read about this stuff. I, I remember Annette Howell just finished writing this book called ADHD 2.0. And he said, basically, a person with ADHD has a Ferrari brain with bicycle brakes. And it's just like a popcorn machine with endless ideas. And so I wonder, I mean, for you, like having that sense that, okay, now I understand it. Because I think one of the things that I found to be so valuable, uh, Tara McMullen actually said there's a term for this called biographical illumination, where suddenly you get that diagnosis and the rest of your life suddenly makes sense. And so I wonder, as somebody who was fortunate, at least I think fortunate to be diagnosed early in life, what do you think the the difference is between somebody who gets diagnosed in the short term versus long run? I mean, well, you seem like a train wreck. Let me just open with that. (laughs) You seem okay. Uh, But I think, so I actually have a, I know someone right now who is in their, you know, late career, very successful, but is just being diagnosed um, and realizing this thing. And they, it's been quite dramatic for them. Um, They have had to go through this whole like grieving process for their old self who they had kind of convinced themselves they were and convinced everyone else. They'd kind of, because they're very smart, very high functioning and had built all these systems to let them feel like they were kind of a type A person. But then there were all these problems, all these inconsistencies, all these things that caused drama in their relationships and all this stuff. When as soon as they got this little inkling of learning what ADD was and or I guess ADHD was and reading math, like, oh, maybe I'm this, maybe I'm like the opposite of what I've kind of been projecting and convincing myself of. And this is related to why I have all this imposter syndrome. So I think that it doesn't preclude you from being successful, first of all. And I, I, but I think that not knowing it is like setting the stage for people to be angry at you 
and you to be angry at yourself for things that you don't understand that you have don't have any control over sorry and i think it's just really hard but but at the same time i think it's always um that uh what do you call it biographical illumination yeah real i think that is definitely happening to this person and i think um i think i think it's good for them in even though it's hard now and like they their partner is having to to kind of go through it the same understand shift in understanding and all that I think it's good. I think it would certainly have been better early. On the flip side, I feel like now our schools are so, so aware of it. And, and maybe it's being overdiagnosed. I don't know. Like my sense is if any kid gives them any trouble, they're like, give them some meds, you know, like, hey, take these pills, like shoving them down kids' throats. I, I don't, I don't know exactly what it is, but I have some sense that, that we might have shifted in the, a bit in the opposite direction. Yeah. On the note of ADHD, I forgot to ask you to do something before we started. Can I have you disable your camera? And like, oh. I find visuals dis- distract. If it's for the exact reason, yeah, re- I'm not def- even looking at the camera at all. I know you're not. I know you're <laughs> not. And so I actually don't have it turned on. And this is actually yeah. a good example of my ADHD at work. So I actually specifically have to ca- keep camera off um, for that very reason. But uh, one thing I wonder, like, what have you seen as both the advantages and disadvantages? of having ADHD, because I think that what I'm realizing is in some contexts, it's a gift and in others, it's an absolute burden. So for you, yeah. where has it been a gift and where has it been a burden? Um, I mean, there's, there's so much that's a gift. Just like the creative energy I have, I have this like unbelievable creative energy, which I attribute in part to just the mind exploring and going off in different directions. Like, and it's very related to the, to the downside, which is I might be standing in the kitchen for 10 minutes doing nothing, just in some idea. Right. And my, my wife might come up and be like, aren't you supposed to be getting dinner? And I'm like, Oh yeah, 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 totally. Right. (laughs) And it's just like, literally it just can like ideas can like stop me in my tracks or just, and I have very strong visual imagination. So it's just can be, be like totally in a different world. But that's also the, that's both the downside and the upside for me. Um, I also, I don't take medication anymore because I really didn't like the tweaky feeling of it. So I haven't taken them since college. Mm-hmm. So I still have a lot of the, like I, I you know, even though that it, it was transformative, I, I kind of stopped. I, I'm thinking about it again. So I, I'm still in the middle of, of it, kind of. So, I mean, I think that's, I, I think one of the huge downsides of it is, um, what's it called? Reactive dysphoria stuff. Do you know what I'm talking about? Rejection the, sensitivity is one of them. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's really sucks. Like just this, and for people who know about ADHD, basically it's one of these things where if you get negative feedback or you get rejected or, or something like this, it's, it's just so, just so much in a profound, exaggerated way, just such a gut punch. Even the smallest little bit of negative feedback can be just really debilitatingly painful, which yeah. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know this. My wife actually, once she, she realized I had ADD, even though I'd been telling her for ages, but when she started actually looking into it, she learned about that and she was like, whoa. And I didn't know about that because I have ADD, so I'm not going to look into all details you know so so she's she's like been educating me about ADD but uh but yeah that sucks man there's all these emotional things I think that really suck that are just like I don't know what you can do they suck yeah well Um, it's funny because I I relate to that whole idea of going to the kitchen like my mom she's like you know I'm at my parents house right now because my sister's on maternity leave because she just had a baby so uh, you know, I wanted to hang out with them and she's like, all right, we're putting a checklist in the bathroom for you. I hope that's okay. Cause she's, you know, she's like yeah. OCD. So she needs everything. She's like, the towel has to be hung properly. The cap needs to be put on the toothpaste. And what I realized at a certain point was that people with ADHD for them, the things that other people consider important, they think are irrelevant. You know? right. or it, right. you know, I have a friend who's like dude he's like you come over to our house you open the cabinet to get something out and then you don't close the door and <laughs> I realized like because my mind has already processed like whatever I needed and I've just moved on mentally just forget yeah my wife is like she's she plays this game with with my daughters of like 
like, where will Jesse put his shoes next? Cause it's like, she's like, there's a box for the shoes, but he will arrange them meticulously in a random place, like around the house. Right. Yeah. That's so like the other, when she played this game last, my shoes were arranged in like a line kind of like wedged up against the bottom of a counter, like one in front of the other, like in this way that you could never get there naturally. Mm-hmm. And it, it just didn't occur to me at the time. Obviously there was, there was no thought going on yeah. in my head. Right. Oh, no, I, I can completely relate. Yeah. Well, speaking of your wife, uh, you, know, you mentioned your wife is Indian. One thing I am always curious about, curious about with people who, uh, you know, are, are interracial couples and have children is how you actually preserve and maintain heritage and culture. Like, how do you integrate aspects of both your culture and hers when it comes to your children? Yeah. So I think this might relate to ADD as well. But, um, so her family, um, is sort of very on top of it. They're all like, so basically the Indian culture stuff is, is, is doing pretty well. We go back to India pretty regularly. She sees her grandparents. She sees all her aunties and uncles. And, um, they're, I mean, it's funny, but like they go to church with her grandpa because they're from Goa. So Goan Catholic, you know, converted by the sword in 1400. And, um, all that stuff is, is strong with them. Um, the Jewish side, I mean, the American side, you don't have to worry about. They're, they're immersed in it. But the Jewish side, I'm doing a pretty bad, actually a horrible job of it because my Jewish identity was sort of like taken in a weird way. I always grew up Jewish. I was one of the Jewish kids in this town. But when I went to college, I don't really, I'm, I'm like, my mom is a, is, is she converted, but she, she's by blood Jewish. So she, I, I, I don't look that Jewish. So people never really believed me when I said it in college, I'd have to like say a prayer to convince them or something. And that honestly like wore down my Jewish identity a lot, like kind of not feeling accepted and part of it. And so it was this default thing that kind of left. And I think part of ADD, like I just don't remember, pay attention. I don't know if it's AV or just being like uh, unengaged, but I basically am doing a really bad job of that. And I've been thinking about it lately. Like well, after Kanye said what he said about the Jews and Death Con 3, I, I had this feeling like, oh shit, I got to take these kids to temple, you know, like they've never been to synagogue. It's really bad. So I don't know. It's not a part of my life other than just, it's part of my family. Like I'm super secular and, yeah. and I don't take the time. I'd love to hear the songs again. I mean, we went to synagogue. My parents were, we went to synagogue every week and my parents on like the board of the synagogue. Mm-hmm. So, so I don't know. Well, I mean, like many of the people I interview, you seem to have sort of a windy past. So first you go from being, you know, the bad kid in school, diagnosed with ADHD, then to Stanford. And then you go from Stanford to trying to be a, an actor <laughs> to starting Wait. a tech company. So, yeah. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. I think that's, I, I would love to pretend that, uh, that's, that that's the path that I wanted to be an actor, but I never thought I was going to be an actor. I was an improviser, but I never okay. thought I would do it professionally. Okay. Um, I thought other things. So I thought, I mean, I thought I was going to be, I mean, my, my dream was always to be an inventor. So it kind of is, has to some degree uh, turned out that way. But uh, I, what I studied in college was design. Um, and I, I really had no idea what I was going to do, to be totally honest. Um, I, my first job out of college was in the social innovation space. Um, and it was a really crazy, strange job. Uh, but should we just pretend I wanted to be an actor? Sure. We could do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, yeah. it sounded like that based on, on the, the, you know, the, the bio that your, the marketing guy yeah. sent us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. Sorry. About <laughs> no that. worries. But um, I can well, do it. I can go with it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> You, I think that there's a line that struck me in particular uh, that was in the bio that we got about you. And it was that your marketing guy said you're an artist trapped in the body of a CEO. Right. Very true. So I didn't want to be an actor. What I wanted to be was a children's book illustrator and author. Um, and at Stanford, I tried to design my own um, curriculum around that to, to have that be my thing, graduate in that. Because uh, I was taking, anyways, and they wouldn't let me. So, I like they wouldn't let me do an independent major, and because I basically need external structure or I don't do things, it didn't happen. Um. So, in the terms of the being an artist trapped in a CEO's body, that's entirely true. I just think you know, like I'm a, I'm in terms of like being a scatterbrained idea person who just like wants to create, wants to, um, be a craftsman sort of and and just has this insatiable creative energy um it's a huge contrast and conflict with having to build and run an organization um which requires a lot of follow-through a lot of attention to detail which in some ways i have but it's like i think as you probably relate you don't really have control over where your attention to detail goes you mm -hmm. know Absolutely. Um, and uh, so in a sense, I am trying to, at this point, I've hired people who are, um, who are more type A, more organized, um, to compliment me and have, am just increasingly shifting things over to them that I, I'm just not well suited to do so that I can be more of an artist, more of an explorer. And I yeah. think what I really want to be is an, like an adventurer, I would say it's like, like, you know, like I, I think I, I wrote to you about mad science. Like my, I'm an aspiring mm -hmm. mad scientist. 
And I really want to just try all these crazy ideas I have and see if any of them are real, you know, and I can't, I don't know. Um, in, in high school, I, I had an idea based on my rudimentary understanding of magnetism for a perpetual motion machine. And I like spent a month building it and, uh, it didn't work. It turns out, which sucks. But, um, yeah. that is like, it's almost like I want to go back to, to doing that, to trying, mm -hmm. just trying wild things. Hopefully they work. Hopefully they're not, you know, uh, outlined by, by the laws of physics, but. Well, I mean, there are so many ironies in this, right? Like you're this person who struggles to get things done. So you build a company that helps you get things done. Yeah. Uh, it, it, I mean, so yeah, what was the impetus for starting workflow? I mean, explain it to people. And then I want to talk about your views on productivity, because I think that, yeah, uh, you know, this is one of those things where uh, I just finished reading. You, you, you might like this book. Uh, by Madeline Dorsch, who's going to be a guest here, called I Didn't Do the Thing Today. And it was such a contrarian view on productivity. But um, nice. as somebody who, who, who you know, literally basically runs a company designed to help people be more productive. First, what was the impetus? Yeah. So I had a job. Um, it was my first, my, my second job out of college, basically. And I was the business development director of a small nonprofit. Um, and in terms of what I was directing, that's my own activities, just to be clear. Um, but that was my title, a small technology nonprofit that was basically trying to be like Mozilla for video. They were trying to build open source software that would sort of in 2005 prevent something like YouTube. It was clear that something like YouTube was going to happen and they wanted it to happen kind of like an open source decentralized way. They obviously failed, but they had, they still had like 5 million users or something. And they were trying to figure out how do we make this a sustainable business? And there were like 400 different options. So you, you could sell ads, you could sell content, you could customize your software for other people. You could, th there was just it, maybe, maybe literally 10 different directions you could go that all were viable things, viable potential directions, but each of which was essentially starting a new business from scratch using a similar resource. And even each of which required an enormous amount of detail to, uh, to execute, implement. And some small project in, inside any of them might end up being, you know, like pitch and, and, and source and whatever, 10 new companies, any of which are, they might have a whole department for them, you know, in another organization. Um, so I had this just really overwhelming job and I couldn't keep track of the information. Like it was just, I couldn't keep track. And I also at the same time in parallel had this just profound creative urge, which I mentioned already and I was not scratching it. So I'm being overwhelmed by or, over information and just churning through productivity tools. So everything, Basecamp, TextMate, just Word, uh, every, everything that you can think from that era that existed, I basically tried it. And I encountered the same problem in all of them. It's that they had a limited depth. So there's always some d definition of project, some definition of milestone, task, whatever, or just the size of the paper in Word, for example, that limits how much you can break things down. And as I think someone with ADD, I really need to break something as big as like take over the world down into this, a step as small as like open your computer and type a word. So I couldn't do that. And I also couldn't, um, basically all the projects I have seemed like they expanded and I needed something with a fractal structure. So I just needed, I, I knew I needed a fractal structure and I knew I wanted to make something. So I basically, and I knew I, I'd taken a couple programming classes in college and, and I knew I loved that process, that that would felt the same to me. Programming felt the same to me as working with clay or drawing or something like that. It really felt like an artistic tinkering type of thing. Um, you, you have an idea, you make something and there it is in front of you. It's, it's like a beautiful thing. And so I just decided to combine those. I knew I wanted a fractal thing and I knew I liked programming. So I just started working on it. And, um, and once I started using it, I was like, this is great. This is awesome. Like, I like it. And then, um, well, that's the, that's the very, that's the impetus. That's the story of the impetus. No. Well, uh, yeah. So we'll talk a little bit about workflow and kind of how it differs from some of the other stuff out there uh, in a second. But I, I want to go back to this whole idea of productivity, because I think that, you know, as a culture, let's face it, we've become somewhat productivity obsessed. Uh, I feel like, you know, I realize when I log into Medium now, I'm like, why do I feel like I'm drowning in a cesspool of productivity porn? Because 
Yeah. I'm like, and I've contributed to a lot of this because I wrote a lot of these articles. And now I'm like, every time I open this damn site, it's all I see. And, yeah. you know, I even have a course called Maximize Your Output, which is related to my favorite go-to note-taking app, which is MEM, because it works perfectly for the way my brain works. Um, but, you know, let's let's talk about this. I mean, the idea of productivity as this abstract metric that we're just all obsessively trying to optimize, because I feel like we almost have this sort of idea of productivity without a purpose. You know, it's just, yeah. hey, let it happen. And, and, you know, and sometimes it conflicts with being creative. Yeah, like I saw, I just, I literally just finished writing this article titled "Why Me- the Ta- Why Task Completion is a Terrible Measure of Your Productivity," because yeah. people are like, "Oh, I'm just going to check off all these things." Like, do you have a productive day? Because I crossed all this shit off of list. I was like, "Yeah, but what impact did any of that have?" Yeah, yeah, that's what I was about to say. Is I say I, I'm not obsessed with productivity at all, unless you define it as um, doing something meaningful or important or enjoyable. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, like I'm really not trying to optimize every minute um, or I guess I am, but I think it's like, uh, what, who said this? Uh, okay. Anyways, um, like the idea that, that what you work on matters more than how you work on it or how, how, how efficiently you work on it. I think that's, I think that's true. And I think that, in terms of productivity for me, like what workflow does for me, for example, this is just, it's, it's just about enabling me to focus. It's not about like squeezing more hours out of my day. It's like, unless I can write down the smallest thing and then zoom in on it and take notes while I'm working on it and just keep doing that and just manage my, my working memory in a very fluid way. Um, I just kind of can't do anything. I'm frozen. So for me, productivity is about extending your capabilities, extending your mind, extending what you can do in a f- fundamental way and focusing on what it, what is it that I should actually be doing. So like one thing I do right now and one thing I'm experimenting with is sort of focus focus and accountability services is a way of thinking about it. Where basically uh-huh. you like help people do the stuff that they're avoiding for whatever reason or that they can't get themselves to do. And, and that is much more important doing the stuff you know you need to do, but you can't get yourself to. That's much more important than like being more effective and efficient at whatever the hell you are doing. You know? Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny. So Julian Smith, um, who you might know, uh, is a founder of Breather, runs another, um, a startup now called the practice, uh, which is mm-hmm. coaching software. He's been mentoring me mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, I, I reached out to him and I said, look, Julian, you made the transition from, you know, being solely an artist to, to being a CEO of two venture funded companies now. And the reason I reached out to you is because the one piece of advice you gave me led to a six figure book contract. I'm like everything you've taught you. Know, so I was like, you're the person because yeah. you've made the transition I've made and your advice led to really concrete results. But one thing I've noticed about our mentorship calls Every week, basically, we talk not about what I've been doing, but what I should stop doing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that right there was kind of just, a, you know, art. like when you start to think about that, what happens is you suddenly realize you're like, yeah, you might work a little longer and you'll probably work on less stuff, but more impactful stuff. And he had this really interesting sort of uh, description when he calls sort of the attention effort value funnel. Where it's like, mm-hmm. you know, where does your attention and effort go and what value does it produce? And how do you filter out for those things? Um, and that was really just, it was such a different way of thinking. Where it's like, okay, what do I actually do that produces any value? And I'm like, maybe three or four things. Like, I always joke that I'm the most useless person at my company because all I, you know, it, the only things of value that I do are interview people, write and speak and produce content. And like, that is what 98% of my time should be focused on is producing content, not tweaking website designs and stuff like this. And I feel like people get so caught up in minutia that is very irrelevant to what they're trying to accomplish. It's, it's like the person, this is actually a really a good example. My my uh, best friend and I, we host this segment called the Creativity Hour. We're talking about people who start a business, right? And he's like, you know, there's some people who say they're going to start a business and they go and get a business card printed. And then there are other people who go and just sell the service. 
right? Like we put all these things in our way that are completely irrelevant. So for you, I mean, as somebody with ADHD who has the same tendencies I do to want to like, you know, go in multiple directions and explore ideas. I mean, how do you prevent yourself from going in parallel paths? And how do you sort of identify those things that actually end up having the most impact? So, I mean, I think that is a question for the ages. The last one, how do you identify <laughs> what has more impact? Um, and I, I think to, to, to an extent, like when um, we can learn from sort of product design process there, which is you, you can do some amount of um, analysis by the theory and your understanding of whatever system you're trying to change is. You can do that, but then that almost never stands up. That's directional, I think. And it doesn't really stand up to reality usually. So I think the way you figure out how you're going to have impact is by doing something small and seeing if it has an impact. And if it does, do more of it and go further in that direction. If it doesn't, shift direction a little bit. Does that answer? Does, is that like a valid answer? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I, I think that the the other thing is that, you know, people are also, this is one thing I think about it is you know, people are like, okay, what is the impact then? I think they can get into a trap of measuring their progress against outcomes. And I realized a long time ago that that was actually a really easy way to kill your motivation. Um, yeah, I mean, I can't take totally. credit for that. That's, you know, I'll do the work of uh, Teresa Amabilia at Harvard. Uh, but, it, you know, she has a progress principle. And I was like, oh, okay, if you measure your progress with metrics that you can control, yeah, exactly. then you actually stay a lot more motivated to show up and do the thing that you want to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, the four disciplines of execution is yep. Cal Newport recommends that, right? And it, yeah, they have this concept totally. of lead, lead metrics, which are exactly mm-hmm. that. And that it's yeah. depressing if you like, if you diet and you, and you measure your weight, like ever, it, all the only thing it can do can, can hurt you because if you lost weight, you're like, congratulations, let's have a milkshake. And if you've, if you haven't lost weight, you're depressed and you give up, you know, it's like mm-hmm. measure your, how well you're doing, measure, weigh yourself once a month or less. And like yeah. m- measure whether you're doing eating the stuff you want to eat or whatever it is. I mean, diet's a silly example, but yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, mm-hmm. But okay, so th- there were two parts to that question. The, the original question: one was uh, how do you measure? Y- how do you how do you tell what's worth with doing? And then I think you also asked how do I, in particular, sort of choose what to focus on and what to uh, not get pe- pulled in parallel tracks. Um, so I would say I'm not great at that. Um, it's hard. It's a real struggle for me with ADHD, as you said. Um, but what I'm trying to do more is orient my life toward my strengths. So, um, so that I don't have to be failing at things I'm not good at all the time. And it's like, I love nothing better than working on my weaknesses, but in terms of my career, like what I'm trying to do right now is if, if, if you're saying like, Oh, okay, you're, I'm 40, I'm, I'm 42. I'm going to die in like, you know, as much time as I've already had on this earth. Like I'm, I'm reaching the end of my, uh, or whatever, you know, I, the sun is now past noon and, uh, especially in terms of my productive years. If I was to be saying, what do I want to be the best at in the next while? I would say it's probably like opportunity identification and creation. So that would let me, if I could just say, Oh, I think here's a huge opportunity. Um, and I am going to first identify it and, and set up the, all the systems and all of the precursors to success for this and then just let it go, like set up teams or set up whatever, um, set, do that, essentially being more of a, like a producer role for ideas. Um, that would, I think that would, that would let me be, uh, exceptionally effective at both being able to pursue things sort of in parallel. Uh, so like taking advantage of that desire and potentially, you know, because I'm not a great organizer, having more of a role of feedback and accountability for whatever it is that I start and want to do. Um, and that's also increasingly what I'm doing with my work is I have other people who are doing all the operations and then I have the vision for the product and other things. And then I sort of give feedback and I, uh, I, or, and I pr- prepare the initial the idea, like the, the thing that keeps things, um, there's sort of an inherent workflowiness to things that I think is a lot just my taste. And so I just make sure things stick to that. Yeah. 
Give me an idea, like, what does an average morning for you look like? I mean, you're the CEO of the company. When you sit down at your desk in the morning or when you wake up in the morning, how does your day start? <laughs> so first, it starts with me uh, wrangling my children to get them to school. But after that, uh, it's, it's, I start by sitting down and uh, actually, so let's just go, let's rewind a, a little while. But what I used to happen was someone would call me uh, this woman who is my sort of co- focus coach and make me plan my day and go and start doing all the stuff that I avoid doing. And she would just sit with me. Um, and I'm not doing that now because mostly I've structured my day. So I have meetings. She calls me later in the day now, but I have meetings that essentially structure my time for me. But before I have the meetings, I have like 45 minutes or so. And, um, I will go through we built like a communication tool in our product, which is not public, but is very powerful. And I'll go through and catch up on that. Um, but, but, um, usually whatever the big project I have that I'm supposed to be focused on, I have a meeting scheduled for essentially as beginning of the day as can be where I'm, I'm guaranteed that my kids aren't still screaming and, uh, not out of the house. So usually I have some external structure that makes me focus on what I'm supposed to focus on. Uh, and a social structure and it'll pull me into it. And then, uh, hopefully that kind of sets the, make sure that I end up doing the, the, the deep work on what needs to be the, what's highest priority. Um, yeah. And, uh, sometimes I wake up before my children wake up and get to do some, something that lets me center myself. Um, but oftentimes I just wake up and rush off to deal with screaming. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but you're not venture funded, right? You guys self funded? We raised a little bit of money. Basically, okay. so my co founder and I were sort of paralyzed. He didn't really want to work on it anymore. And we were, um, blah. He also, he was, he was not willing to let me just run with it. So I had to buy him out. So I raised some money, buy him out. But yeah, we're not venture funder. We're not on that cycle. Yeah. Well, so that's one of the things I wanted to ask about because I, I, you know, we raised some money as well. And it definitely changes when you take somebody else's money because now you're no longer just accountable yourself, but to somebody else. Yeah. Uh, and I remember Jeff Bean, who uh, was at Adobe, he said, you know, this is a virtually irreversible path. He said, once you take somebody else's money, particularly at that level. And, you know, in a world where everybody's trying to build, you know, sort of the next unicorn, I wonder, you know, like, why is that just, why is that not part of your long-term vision? And how do you see that whole ecosystem? Because I feel like, you know, you look at sort of, you know, the Ubers of the world, it's like world domination at any cost. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. So I, I don't know well Travis Kalanick, but he's friends with friends. I've hung out with him a handful of times not since Uber, but like at the beginning of Uber and before. And I'm just like, look, that's like his personality, even when he's uh-huh. like playing cards, you know? Like, so <laughs> I hear, yeah. And uh, so, um, but in terms of the broader question, so actually, I mean, it's funny. So my goal, so I had that first job in um, social entrepreneurship, social innovation space that I mentioned at the beginning. And my goal basically since then, there's this whole category of company that's, you know how Yvonne Chouinard has given away Patagonia and made it a for-purpose business that he's, do, do you know about this? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so they're, they're basically donating all the profits from the company forever to nonprofit whose goal is to, uh, you know, help address tra- climate change. So since that job, when I was like 23 or whatever, I had, I had this idea that, you know, I think you could, there, there's Newman's own and there's a bunch of smaller companies, but I had this idea that I think you could, it would be possible to get a positive feedback loop such that most that companies like that for purpose companies end up being a dominant force in the global economy, like a dominant form of company, maybe uh, surpassing like for profit companies in the long term. And so I became really obsessed with that idea. And I wanted to start a company so that I could dramatically uh, give away the money and stuff. So that's that's my plan. And that's what I want to do with Workflow and with other things. And so that's sort of the reason that I haven't wanted to raise money, um, that raised a lot of money. Um, yeah. I still want to do things that are huge, but I, 
don't want to be tied into um, having my main goal be to make the richest people richer, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't have, I know a lot of the richest people. They're great. I don't have anything against billionaires, but I just, it's like, it's just not the system I'm excited about. Mm-hmm. Which makes me wonder, I'm guessing, given what you've just said, and I kind of feel this way too, that Workflow is probably not going to be the last company you build. No. I am, I think, I think, I honestly, I think like the crazy thing I want to do, I want to see if I can, uh, I, w- I would say at this point, yes, it's not the last company I would build, but I, I'm not sure company is the right word for what I want to build next. Um, yeah. It might be more like movement or nonprofit or something. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, this has been really fascinating. I mean, I, I've really just enjoyed talking to you and you know, like so many different directions and you know, so many sort of insights sparked from me during our conversation. So I want to finish with my final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Um, unmistakable. I mean, I, I mean, I would say like the thing, I think there, there are lots of things, but my favorite thing is just authenticity. Um, like we had, a, I went out to a, a diner with my brother and my mom last weekend and our server was this woman who was really delightful. My brother said at one point, he's like, what percentage of things that come to her mind do you think she says? And I was like, 83. And he's like, yeah, I think I'm like a 30. But she was not, it wasn't in an annoying way. It was just in this delightfully like cheerful, positive way but something about her struck me as just so authentic that she was definitely unmistakable to me um and uh i don't know um i mean there's obviously there's you could say uniqueness but that doesn't feel like a unique answer Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with the listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and everything you're up to? Uh, I don't have much of a social media presence. Uh, you could follow me on Twitter. I'm Jesse P, J-E-S-S-E-P, but there's not much going on there. I recommend just checking out workflowy.com. That's the company product I've been making. That's it. All right. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. 
the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.